liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Today I'm bringing you the live audio, it's better than the last time though, I promise, of my appearances or my panels that I did at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. The first one is a deep dive on ESG, which is absolutely brilliant stuff, you will love it. The second one is with our guys, Maj Ture and Spike Cohen with myself as moderator on why gun rights are human rights. Both of these talks took place in Las Vegas. Just a couple weeks ago at Freedom Fest, I hope you guys will turn out next year. It was a great, great attendance already, but I love to see the Liberty Lockdown crowd in the building. I got to meet a bunch of you, but I hope hope it grows and grows. It's a really great event. Uh, anyways, I will not be running ads on this episode because I don't want to run afoul of Freedom Fest. It was their audio recording, and obviously they compensated me for being there. But I do want to say that if you want to support my work, please go over to libertylockdown.locals.com and sign up to become a supporting member of the show. Other than that, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Caleb Franz. I am the program manager uh, at a great organization called Young Voices. We serve as a talent agency for young people to help uh, get them placed in media uh, and uh, and outlets across the country and the world. Uh, I also host a history podcast called uh, Profiles in Liberty. So if uh, history is any of your all's interest, then I highly encourage you to go and check that out. Uh, but today, I'm going to be your moderator for this panel on why companies should cater to consumers, not causes. Uh, I would like to introduce our panelists here. Um, I will go, I guess, right to left. Uh, Stephen Kent is the author of How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away, as well as the Director of Operations at Echelon Insights, a boutique uh, polling and research firm in the Washington, D.C. area. Kent formerly hosted a weekly interview program called Right Now with Stephen Kent for Al Jazeera, uh, a pro uh, Al Jazeera's uh, Rightly project uh, that spent, uh, and he spent close to five years as spokesperson and PR director for Young Voices. Next up, we have uh, Kimberly uh, Josephson a associate professor of business at Lebanon Valley College, and she serves as an adjunct research fellow with the Consumer Choice Center. She is also a member of the Fee Faculty Network and a writing fellow at the Heterodox Academy. She teaches courses on global sustainability, international marketing, and workplace diversity. And her research and op-eds have appeared in various outlets. She holds a doctorate in global studies and commerce and a master's degree in international policy, both from La Trobe University, a master's degree in political science from Temple University, and a bachelor's degree in business administration with a minor in political science from Bloomsburg University. And then finally, we have uh, Clint Russell. Uh, Clint was a private mortgage broker who managed hundreds of millions of dollars in investor capital uh, for about a decade and retired in his 30s to rail against the lockdowns. In May 2020, he started Liberty, yes, please. <laughs> 
In May 2020, he started Liberty Lockdown Podcast and has since become one of the top 250 news podcasts in America. Now, uh, I kind of want to start this conversation um, in somewhat uh, reflective terms. I know that for a while, certainly around in 2015, 2016, uh, this is a conversation that a lot of libertarians and, and conservatives were having internally amongst themselves, uh, that you know, if, if government is going to do something, then this idea of conscience capitalism was start, starting to sort of pop up, saying that there should be more of an intentional focus towards um, making sure that companies uh, are aware of their social responsibilities. Uh, and as of late, especially uh, I would say since the lockdowns and since the COVID era, that has changed. And I think a lot of people have started to see some of the negative consequences um, of that. Uh, Kimberly, I'd like to, to start with you. Do you think that uh, a lot of people in, in this space was do you think that they were onto something? Uh, do, do you think that they were misplaced? And, and what do you think uh, went wrong in that front? Yeah, I think uh, you know it was good attentions that have kind of gotten out of control. Um, so if we think back to Adam Smith and his law of unintended consequences, it's called a law because it's it's going to happen, right? And so um, we saw this kind of uh, gradual interest in really engaging in what's known as CSR, corporate social responsibility. It was made famous by Archie Carroll and his CSR pyramid, which was kind of like at the base, you have your economic responsibility, then you have your legal, your ethical, and then your philanthropic, which was really just a desired thing as in, hey, if you're doing well as an organization, it's a good idea to give back. It's a good idea to be a good steward of your society. Um, however, it's really flipped that pyramid um, and where now much of the focus is on um, the role of business in society and it's kind of taken on a form of its own. And uh, so I'd love to talk about that more, but I also don't want to ramble too much at the start. Um, but that's where the base is, is I don't think that how it started was, you know, un you know uh, malice or wanting to take over, wanting to become social guardians of society. I think it was good intentions of businesses wanting to do the right thing. But now what we see is greater pressure on in terms of reputation as well as regulation on these businesses to abide by these different rating systems and frameworks that have been put into place. And that's where the problem is arising. Um, and so I know ESG is going to be a topic that we'll, we'll discuss as well. So we'll get to that. Stephen, do you think that um, libertarians and, and conservatives were sort of misplaced or even naive about uh, about uh, their approach on this on this subject? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, of course. I mean, we sort of have a tendency to uh, want to put a little bit more trust in the private sector. Uh, based out of opposition purely to the public sector. Um, I don't think we ever really accounted for the possibility that Marxists might be a lot more clever than we gave them credit for at being able to slip into those institutions and do long and steady work, uh, the same kind of long and steady and patient work that we are accustomed to doing. Um, I think we're seeing uh, fruits born right now that are the result of uh, a lot of effort put in by intellectuals in that movement to actually just reorient the entire ship of capitalism away from Milton Friedman's uh, what saying, you'll probably get it better than, than I can, but that their single, the single duty of the firm 
uh, is to uphold the interests of shareholders. Uh, somebody got an idea that you could actually just reorient that towards uh, the, st um, um, the stakeholders or the, the people, the community at large. Um, and we need to rethink our own allegiances, I think, to the private sector. Uh, the, the trick is what tools to use, right? I, I, I'm very sympathetic to some of the um, kind of conservative uh, methods that are being undertaken in states like Florida to try to push back against a company uh, like Disney for getting, uh, I think, encroaching beyond their traditional cultural boundaries and trying to use the power of the state to do that. But again, power of the state makes me feel icky, makes me want <laughs> to just like jump off, uh, off one of these casinos because I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be one of those people who endorses using the tool of government to, uh, to enact a common good, but I, I'm open to suggestions from people here at the table at maybe what things we should consider. And actually, if I could jump in with the SPICE model. So if you've ever heard of stakeholder, uh, stakeholder theory or stakeholder capitalism, it is the idea of, yes, we're putting our stakeholders before um, our shareholders. Um, our shareholders are part of that. And so an, an example of a, a way to think about stakeholders is society partners, so those within the industry, you know, distributors, retailers, um, suppliers, investors, there's your shareholders, and then you have customers and employees. And the stakeholder model has now expanded even greater to, you know, the environment, right, DEI initiatives and things of that nature. Um, the thing is, though, for shareholders, uh, it's their property, it's their investment, so it's not the wrong thing to really focus on on their investment. Um, but, you know, John Mackey of Whole Foods kind of made this stakeholder capitalism famous. And once again, I think it's good intentions in that, hey, business does have a spillover effect. Let's consider the stakeholders. But it's gone to the extremes. Uh, Clint, you uh, have had a lot of uh, private sector experience. Uh, can you tell us anything about what uh, you've experienced in, in your line of work uh, in the past and how this, how this relates to it? Well, I was a, a private money mortgage broker, so I didn't really encounter this because I wasn't in the corporate world. I didn't have, uh, you know, HR representatives that were breathing down my neck to go woke. So uh, I was HR if there were to be an HR rep. So that it didn't really impact me. Uh, the reason I became interested in this subject was because I didn't understand why corporations seem to be getting away from a focus on consumer needs, and and it didn't it didn't makes sense to me as a business person. You know, I was like, okay, this, there's something off here. And for years and years, as the wokeness seemed to take over the marketing campaigns of all of the Fortune 500 companies, I was just mystified. I didn't understand it, because I, I, if you look at the polling, people will regularly tell you they don't like this stuff, but they continue. So I started to scratch a little bit, and I, and I dug a lot deeper over the past year to really understand it in depth. Um, but at the core of it was ESG and BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, the World Economic Forum. Uh, she was much more kind in saying that there was probably not malicious intent. I tend well, to... Th yeah, not the, from the businesses. From <laughs> oh, the businesses. oh, from the businesses, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that its, its origin story is one that, that ought to be told. I don't know if we'll have time to do so today. Uh, but it, it stems from the UN and... Uh, I think that that's an important thing to notice is that, or to note that this is not strictly a organic creation that came from private businesses deciding that they wanted to look after the stakeholders of their of civilization. It uh, it starts with a supranational organization like the UN. So let's let's uh, pause and sort of define that for for a moment. Sure. Uh, when when you say ESG, what are you talking about there? 
ESG is an acronym. It stands for Environment, uh, Social, and Governance, and Environment being looking after the environment. This is their, this is what they say. You know, we can talk about what I think it actually means. Uh, <laughs> e is environment or environmental. S being social, like social justice. So you've heard social justice warrior. It's like everything that they would value. That's that becomes a focus of the scoring mechanism. And community generally. Yes. Yeah, it's it's the communitarian ethic. Except community becomes everybody. Right. <laughs> and then governance. Governance being oftentimes the diversity of your board and things of that nature. So. S and G, in my opinion, are fairly similar in that they're they're prioritizing a bunch of things that I don't agree with, which is judging people based off their skin. So it's a it's a deep deep seated problem. Do you see that? Um, uh, obviously, with with your podcast, you started with the uh, you really started to rail against the lockdowns, as <coughs> we mentioned. Um, do you think that COVID really accelerated this urgency from companies to feel like they're doing their social duty, they're doing their, their, their job to uh, kind of steer society in the right direction? Uh, I think it's even more sinister than that. I don't think without the adoption of ESG more broadly amongst corporate America that we would have seen lockdowns in this country. Uh, I believe that it, it represented a belief in technocracy a belief that you could have a small cabal of hyper-intellectuals, Fauci, Burks, et cetera, uh, that could dictate what every man, woman, and child should do, not just in this country, but across the planet. Uh, I really believe that ESG was kind of in the backdrop of why this even became a plausible, uh, I would say offer, but it's not, it wasn't an offer, demand for everyone on earth to yeah, do. I, I've kind of seen, and particularly just kind of coming up in, in the libertarian movement, uh, you know, since, since getting out of college, my, I had always been happy and optimistic when I would look at the latest poll from Harris or Politico or Axios saying that trust in CEOs has never been higher. They would, they would show like, all right, trust at Congress is like down at 20% and trust in the president is down in 32%. And then the trust of your average CEO, you know, maybe whoever runs Pfizer or Walt Disney Company, and this is like, you know, five, six years ago, um, has never been higher, close to 80% trust. People really like these people. And as a capitalist, a libertarian, I was like, this is great. Uh, and then you're kind of like fast forwarding to now, fast forwarding to the post COVID times and realizing that, oh, like these people aren't accountable to me in any way, shape, or form. And I, I get it now. Like I sort of get the old school 70s, 60s liberal critique of capitalism and corporatism. Um, one thing that I, I just wrote about in, in my book, uh, How the Force Can Fix the World, is like the politics of, of Star Wars. And just to kind of go off on a quick tangent with that, because George Lucas in his episodes one, two, and three, like made a deep criticism of corporatism, that basically you could buy off democracy, that companies would have a seat in Congress. And that was sort of his like 1970s liberal hippie criticism of money and politics. And, and I was like, that's overdramatic. That will never happen. Now I'm really just starting to rethink these things based on what they are doing with our trust in corporations. It, actually, if I could jump in too. So it, we do see a, a generational shift as well. So we have a lot of those who are now in managerial positions um, to be uh, 
of a younger generation. And so really, uh, working in academia, there has been a shift in focus in what is taught in business, um, as in, you know, in, in MBA programs and things, uh, because of Enron and because of you know, issues that arose. Uh, so there was a real focus on business ethics, right? Uh, but that has since expanded alongside, as uh, we've seen growth in these international organizations with these new frameworks. Um, so in the early 2000s, there was a real push and interest in wanting to do more because as a society, we were advancing. So think about even when your purchasing power increases, right? You have a greater interest in um, the psychological attributes of something or you want to have more power with your purchase. Same thing in terms of business, as businesses were excelling and they were becoming smarter and they were becoming more aware of things and more interested in things and greater pressure. Um, so even how you said studies or are, are, are statistics are showing people you know, don't want these things. Actually, Generation Z is um, sure. known as a generation that really wants social activism, right? And so these companies who want to cater to, attract both customers as well as employees, they're seeing this, right? And um, ESG came about because in, once again, the early 2000s, and this was actually even before that. So you had the right to development by the United Nations, and if you remember the red campaign with a U2's Bono, right, buy something red, and if you remember that. So it's just kind of continued to have this ripple effect. And in 2006, uh, they came up with the Principles for Responsible Investing, which was the United Nations way of trying to incentivize those uh, you know, big players in the investment world to take part in these social initiatives, right? And so it's just gradually been growing, and um, a lot of businesses don't fully understand what ESG truly means and entails, and they're kind of jumping on the bandwagon because it's, this is seen as the right thing to do. Uh, another big organization, uh, if you've ever heard of the ISO standards, um, so ISO is an international organization for standardization, and they became well-known for certifying companies for things like quality control. And this was to make, uh, this was to make international trade easier. Uh, so for businesses, they could get certified, and then it gave them clout when they were dealing with international you know, exchanges that, yes, we have the certification, yes, we stand by these standards. It has since evolved to not only ISO standards in environmentally, uh, being environmentally friendly, but now also ISO standards in corporate social responsibility as well as ethics, right? And that's a subjective and has cultural context, and that, that's something that, you know, we're really muddying the waters of business. You mentioned uh, basically how people think that this is the right thing to do, or they're, they're trying to pursue like ESG because they, they might or might not think it's the right thing to do. So on the first couple of rows here, you'll find paper with a QR code. So this is from my firm, Echelon Insights. We recently just did a poll commissioned by the Daily Wire where we were actually able to speak to and poll 1,000 people who are Wall Street investors about their experience and interactions uh, with environmental and social governance standards. And the, the, the findings are pretty shocking if you read over it in, the, in that article, and I'd encourage you to pass the sheet back so other people can kind of scan the code and, and take a look at it sometime today. But in there, they were, we were able to discern that the motives of investors is largely just driven by fear. 56% uh, of investors that we were actually able to, to speak to said that this is done and they enact these policies to try and appease their critics, while only 34% out of 1,000 said that firms are genuinely doing this because they believe it's the right thing. And out of that, 52% of these people say that they are to promote liberal causes, less than 20% conservative causes, and then 
everyone else pretty much says there is nothing neutral about these, these uh, investment strategies at all. Um, it tells you a whole lot about what motivates people, fear, group behavior, and a desire to not be shamed in the public square, which I think goes back to what you were saying about the human resources department and possibly social media managers for companies having way too much influence about how people might see a brand. You know, uh, whenever I, I look back and, and yeah, I've, I've had the same sort of thoughts, you know, back, especially, Stephen, when you were talking about that wide-eyed look of your youthful years and, and when you're first getting into, uh, into uh, libertarian causes uh, or freedom causes and you get really optimistic about, um, about business and markets and things like that. I, I think a lot of times, and this isn't really emphasized enough, um, is that a lot of libertarians and, and conservatives tend to uh, make the mistake of making business and markets compatible as if they're one and the same, rather than uh, businesses being something that will be more than happy to, to work with a, a, a giant state uh, or a government. Um, that might not necessarily be in the the same sort of mindset as the rest of the, the people. Do you think that that, um, that uh, oversight has really uh, allowed a, a lot of companies to kind of kind of go forward with with a lot of this uh, mentality? You want to take it? You, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I just wanted to. I, sorry, this is off topic. Go ahead and answer that, and I, I just have something I'll kick myself if I don't add at some point. No, I, I mean, I absolutely think it's an oversight, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't really, I don't know how to answer your question exactly. So I just, I'm going to punt again okay. and, and kick it over to you. Well, <laughs> I, I think that the the biggest oversight, at least, I'll just speak for myself. If other people agree, then great. But if not, that's fine. Uh, I didn't understand how deep seated the relationship was with the government and big business. I think that that was the the biggest oversight I had, and it's you know naivete. I should have obviously known that, but um, I just didn't think it ran as deep as it does. And I think that you can really see definitively, especially the, I, I, sorry, I keep going back to lockdowns, that's my brand, you know, I gotta do it. Um, <clears throat> but the fact that all of the big businesses both did not oppose lockdowns, but also benefited financially from them in an enormous way. And I don't think that's an accident. And small business, on the other hand, was punished severely. And there was no advocacy on their behalf. And I think that, you know, as he was saying, I've, I will never look at big business in this country or in the world the same way. Mm -hmm. I had always been one of those libertarians that would defend Amazon. Same day yeah. delivery. This is incredible. There's yeah. no downside. There's a huge downside. I, I remember, that's what I wanted to actually mention, because like growing up in the 90s, and, yeah, and exactly. like you, you kind of remember like 1990s Democrats being like hostile to Walmart. Right. And I felt like it was the Chamber of Commerce Republicans and market people who were like, no, this is great, you know? And Tucker Carlson talks about this all the time too, like what are we giving up uh, when, uh, just because our furniture is cheaper and you can make your house look nicer, mm -hmm. what are you giving up by having made in America stuff that is more expensive. Like, it's not necessarily just good. It's making me reevaluate everything. Me too. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would say, though, I don't have so much of a problem if a big business just outcompetes because of economy of scale, because they're, they're better, they're more efficient, they're innovating. That's all fine. I still don't have any issues with that, per se. Where I have issues is when their advantage comes from the relationship to the government. 
and and it's just it's an enormous problem and it, it I, as a libertarian I would also be remiss not to mention the Federal Reserve and all of this uh, I, I strongly believe that the Federal Reserve's relationship to the biggest money managers is enabling them to grow far far bigger than they would naturally in just a truly competitive uh, economy and I think that we are now suffering the consequences of it and unfortunately the vast majority of people don't understand Federal Reserve policy, they don't understand monetary policy, they don't understand any of this stuff. So it's just a huge uphill battle for us to try and we have to explain all of that. Plus, I have to also include the fact that there's a the, the Marxist march through the institutions, which began in academia, is now marching as probably more rapidly through business. Uh, and I just think that now we're dealing with a dual front attack where you have the the woke mobs that will come after any business that doesn't implement ESG, and then you have the hedge funds, the biggest money managers on earth that manage 30 to $50 trillion by some estimates that will defund your company if you don't go along with ESG. When you have both of these uh, simultaneous attacks, what CEO is going to reject those demands? Very few. That's the answer. And the incentive structure is all messed up. And as I've said, it stems from the Federal Reserve. So, uh, Something that, um, that really sticks out to me whenever um, I look at the state of business and the state of um, entertainment and, and really all of the things that, you know, where there's some sort of big business around is that right now, um, Stephen, you mentioned in your, in your, in your polling um, that this isn't necessarily something that's popular, but something that is uh, popular with a very specific and loud group of people. Uh, and they have a lot of influence. But we see a lot, I think, right now, where um, a lot of people with uh, values that are conservative or libertarian uh, are trying to push back in less than, let's just say, cringe ways, <laughs> um, where they're actually creating quality products. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's a, a good thing, largely. But is, is that a sustainable path forward? Like, is is it a is it a an, an America in a world that we want to make where you have your your conservative content and your liberal content, your your conservative business and your liberal business? Because uh, that often seems like that's kind of the world that we're we're heading towards. Yeah, I'm I'm scared of that world very much. I mean, I always wanted the public sector business, the consumer space, you know, the marketplace to be a, a commons where everybody engages because. Companies are, are purely pursuing what is good for their bottom line and what allows them to serve the most amount of customers possible. But it just it really seems that we've had this break since 2011 uh, when Facebook implemented its first uh, algorithms to start splitting people off uh, towards being fed content based on what they are more inclined to want to see. You've seen advertising strategies and marketing and audience growth strategies shift dramatically since this inflection point in how the biggest social media platform in the world started sort of segmenting people out. Um, it has a whole lot of downstream effects. But you, you mentioned, like, is it sustainable? I know it's currently profitable for the Daily Wire. So ask Ben Shapiro how he's feeling about it. He probably feels very good. They've been able to, to raise a huge amount of capital uh, and enlist a huge amount of subscribers to the Daily Wire um, for their content. They basically keep running, and they're building a film studio. This was always 
this was always Glenn Beck's dream for the Blaze, but the Daily Wire is really kind of uh, taking this on in, in a big way. They're producing big A-list quality movies. Uh, so, you know, we're not relegated to having second-class entertainment. And Shapiro and, and Knowles and all those guys will always uh, uh, say, stop giving your money to people that hate you, uh, which I'm just like, I'm so reluctant to, to buy into that sort of like belief that these companies and that these people behind them hate me and therefore I shouldn't buy any of their products, like my iPhone or something like that. But it's powerful, uh, and I think we're going to have that world whether we like it or not. I just wanted to add that it, the reason I am also hesitant to go that path is because it plays into exactly the worldview that they are implementing through ESG in that they, we are now forced to demand that everyone that gives us what are goods shares our philosophical beliefs and our political beliefs. And that has never been how I've functioned throughout my life. I don't really like to be an activist consumer. So it's just, it's just sad that like, the only way we can compete is to become them, kind of. Yeah, actually, if I could, as a business professor, I'm very pro-business. Um, so also, too, I don't want to demonize big business because, uh, you know, they actually don't have a huge trajectory of history or of success over, over time, right? So Amazon beat out Walmart, Walmart beat out Kmart, Kmart beat out Sears, Sears beat out Woolworths, right? So they will, you know, they, the there's, an, of those, there's an of ebb the, and flow. Of happening yeah, is yeah. smaller and smaller with each, yes. each mega company that's, that's So the happening. problem is the crony. I hate crony capitalism. Nothing's wrong with capitalism. It's a cronyism. So big business should not be demonized. It should be because a lot of times, and yes, I, I do believe they are in bed with the government, but I think it's also they have to. They are being forced right. to be in bed. If they aren't lobbying, if they aren't partaking in things, they will have to deal with greater regulations or crackdowns or whatever. So I think it's a forced relationship that most would prefer to um, back away from. Um, I also would say, though, uh, a lot of, you know, we have to take some accountability for businesses. So how you talked about marketing and advertising. I actually, mm -hmm. I was like, you know what, I have it in my purse. Tra I'm a professor, so I like to show things, too. Traveling here, I needed, like, healthy snacks, right? So I, I have my trail mix and everything. Uh, full disclosure, I'm very cheap. I got this at Grocery Outlet, if any of you have ever heard of that store. So you get, you know, stuff that's on, like, discount because it's about to expire. But if you read this, right, all the sorts of things, this is, um, you know, has all these different labels. It's a, a certified B corporation, a benefit corporation. It's saying all these things. So it's not just, you know, good for you. It's good for the planet, right? And consumers are buying into this. So we are, and it's not, once again, I don't want to say, like, you shouldn't support this organization, but companies that are promoting the good that they're doing and the greater spillover effect are seeing a return on it. Uh, when I was on the Cato podcast, um, Kayla Brown said, you know, my pizza place likes to, I, I can't remember, it was something like donate to dogs or something like that. And he's like, what's wrong with that? I was like, well, nothing's wrong with that, but you should only go to that pizza place if you really like that pizza, Right. But organizations, this is a way for them to stand out. Once again, we're an advanced economy, so we have greater purchasing power, so we have a greater interest in our purchase. Um, so, you know, a company can't just focus on, we're just trail mix. Okay, how do I stand about? We're now trail mix that saves the forests or something like that, right? And they're finding out that those sales work. And same thing, I see this in my students in that instead of coming into the classroom wanting to learn how do I, yeah, how do I sustain the organization in terms of making money and investments, they really want to know, okay, 
what good can I do with my, my business? They're looking for what purpose do my, does my business have, not necessarily the function. And that's the problem. And so once again, we see businesses um, trying to do good. And a lot of these ESG metrics, right, they're um, somewhat subjective. There's no set universal framework. And it feels like a soft-handed approach. Um, so for example, even for social, um, one of the uh, ratings that you could look at is turnover rates, right? And so some of these metrics could be helpful for a company to go, you know what, our turnover rate is kind of high for our industry. Maybe we really have to work on employee engagement, right? So some of it could be giving them good information. But if you are going to abide by these rating systems and standards, it does lock you into a system, and it's only going to get harder to come out over time. Uh, working in academia, we have to do assessment. And I shouldn't say this, but I hate it. I hate it because it takes away my time from the classroom because I have to look back at did I meet these metrics? Did I fulfill these rubrics, right? And it actually doesn't allow me to experiment in the classroom or come up with new ideas because I have to abide by what's been laid out. And so businesses, when they say, oh, you know what, we're doing some of this sort of stuff. If we get this ESG rating, mm -hmm. we'll get this certification. We'll look good. Our customers, our employees will like it but now they're locked in. And also consumers, so uh, another certification standard is fair trade, and that's something that I look into a lot. Chobani just became the first in the US for, uh, in the dairy industry to become fair trade certified, to make themselves look good, but also because they think it's the right thing to do, they think it's gonna help them stand out and, and all that sort of stuff. Turns out they're also getting sued because someone's saying they're not going far enough in treating their farmers with equity and all that sort of stuff. So how you said that you know people are the investors are scared, companies are scared, and they're yeah. saying you know how do we prove? Well, we're going to get this external rating system or monitoring or the certified B corporation who says and so B means benefit. It's saying you are a benefit to society, right? What's also kind of weird though is who's certifying the certifiers? Right? I place the blame not with the businesses, it's these rating systems. So the B Corp, that's a monopoly, right? They're saying, and they're actually a nonprofit that makes money off of charging fees to certify your organization, right? So, sorry. No, I, I, one of the things that, that reminded me of was Pew Research has, uh, for the past four, four decades, they have tracked where people um, develop their friendships? Where do, you, where do your friendships form out of? Where do you feel the greatest sense of camaraderie uh, and family and community? Uh, points in the most recent tracking survey for this by Pew have shown that the workplace as the source of where you get community, friendship, and camaraderie has risen 15 points just in the past decade. Why the heck is that? Like, what does that mean? And what kind of implications does it have if our sense of self, our friendships, and our sense of community is being developed at work? At, on one hand, I'm, I'm willing to go like, oh, that's fine. Like, we work with each other. There used to be unions, right? Unions used to be a big deal, and they're not anymore. But that's a very different mechanism. That's, like, that's the workers, like, very explicitly just sort of, like, bargaining with the employer. This other one is, like, this collective mindset of we're a family, right? We take care of each other. Shouldn't we have, like, an employee retreat where we all get to, like, be best buds? No, actually, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, and I, I feel really bad about that because I'm currently planning an employee retreat. Um, but I, like, these are these are real 
things that we have to think about as civil society declines and our affiliation and, and other kinds of organizations, churches, clubs decline, you're going to find the community somewhere else. And it turns out all these social justice warriors coming from these elite universities are going to these companies and going, we're going to build heaven on earth right here at Disney. <laughs> and it's not good. And by heaven on earth, they mean that Disney will pay for your abortion. Uh, I mean, this, this is a, this is, and I'm not kidding, they will. And like 50 major corporations have come out and said that, that they yeah. will pay for your time off and your travel. Many of those corporations don't offer parental leave, though, when you have a kid. So you can kind of see where their agenda is, is uh, derived. I, I like to bring up two examples. As Kimberly was saying, many of the kids coming out of college are seeking an employer that will allegedly fill their sense of purpose in life, which I find flawed <laughs> off top. <laughs> but um, just to give, like, if I had these kids in front of me, what I would say to them is, you're not going to accomplish your altruistic goals by working for this business, because the business is still interested in profit, ultimately. And if you want to make a difference, you should save up from your earnings and go start your foundation and, and make sure that it's actually accomplishing what you want to. And I like to bring up, there's two famous examples that demonstrate kind of the transparent fraudulence of ESG. State Street, which is one of the biggest money managers on earth, they had a lawsuit like a decade ago where there was a plantation, I think it was in Africa, uh, where they had a bunch of sexual assaults and there was also uh, income inequality amongst the male and female uh, employees. And instead of remedying that, State Street responded by building a statue of the brave little girl across the way from the bull on Wall Street. So this is, this is what they actually offer you. They don't offer you the real fix, which every college student coming out would say, well, we just want people to be paid the same, regardless of gender. Well, what you're going to actually get is a statue. You know, that's, that's not great. And then there's also another great example of Core Civic, which is one of the biggest private prison, prison uh, conglomerates in America. They were being harangued over their ESG scoring. How do they respond? Well, they make sure that they have more diverse prison guards and wardens, <laughs> as if that's alleviating the abuse of prisoners. And then on top of that, they put a mural in the, whatever it's called, the, the yard of Martin Luther King Jr., and that legitimately increased their ESG score. If you don't understand how nonsensical and ridiculous and absurd this is after those examples, I don't know what will. All right, so we're going to uh, move on to questions, uh, Q&A. So uh, if anyone has a question, please line up to that microphone right there um, and, uh, you know, go for it. Uh, I want to pose a possible underlying problem that may, has been surfaced. The, mainly you're talking, I think, about large corporations, right, that they're asserting these things. And if you look at large corporations, they're basically, the owners are so removed from, from what's happening at the corporate level that they can hardly be, the common shareholders really shouldn't be called owners. They have no control. They may have equity interests, but they have no control. It is to, I, I'm gonna offer to you that the idea that perhaps it's the fact that the owners are so distant from what's happening in the corporation that they don't assert the normal interest in profits. They can't see 
the, directly how the profits yeah. uh, affect that. You're, that you're onto something, but it's actually uh, the problem's a little bit deeper. The the biggest issue that we're dealing with is because of the uh, the uptake or the uptick in the utilization of index funds. You have the vast majority of people that are just entrusting their savings, their pensions, things like that, with the State Streets, Black Rocks, Vanguards right. of the world. They are giving up their voting rights and they're allowing the Black Rocks, State Street, Vanguards of the world to take on those voting rights. And this is why when people talk about like Larry Fink having outsized power, he's not worth $10 trillion, but he manages $10 trillion and he gets to vote on $10 trillion worth of holdings. That gives him godlike power. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. What needs to happen, and, and this is, I hesitate to say this because I am a libertarian, but I would, I would personally consider strongly making it illegal for them to take on the voting rights of all of the people that they have a fiduciary responsibility to. But my point is that even when they don't take on the voting rights, your voting rights are essentially meaningless. If you own a thousand shares in General Motors, it's, you have no control. Your vote, your vote is irrelevant. It, it, sure. it doesn't mean anything. And so the, the difference between giving up your voting rights and, and having them are, is almost nothing. And, and the, the fact remains the shareholder is really not interested in spending all his time seeing how they're doing social, his corporation's doing social justice and how that affects his, his, uh, bot, the bottom line and his profits. He has no idea how, how the relationship there. And as a result, it's these corporate officers that have their own agenda. They want to be looked at as, as great people. And uh, so they, they have their own agenda that is somewhat different than the individual profits of the shareholders. On the, on the matter of uh, legality with disrespecting the fiduciary interests of your, of your shareholders, Marco Rubio had actually put forward a bill last year called the, Mi don't you shake your head at me, James, the Mind Your Own, the Mind Your Own Business Act. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things, I think it's like a, an opening salvo for this, this issue. Um, basically just giving corporate boards more power uh, or, or actually less power to throw out uh, fiduciary disrespect claims by their shareholders. So right now you can like put in a claim to a company and be like, you're mismanaging my money that I invested it for for you to maximize. And they can pretty much just show you the door. Um, and this would make it a little bit more cumbersome for them to the do that. The end goal which, of where yeah. I was, what I was leading to is, we, is perhaps we need to get rid of publicly traded corporations in the Ooh, SEC. I don't know about that. And to have... <laughs> have uh, <laughs> companies owned well, yeah. by, by people who are really owners. It's, it's like yeah. Let me just counter that real yeah. quick. That's for it, sure. It, it would have to be a global decision because otherwise the American economy oh, would I'm be, would be devastated. Yeah, I'm just saying. yeah that's, Let's get the next, that's the next reason question up here. Yeah. here get, this, get this troublemaker out of here. He's, he's oh, no, that's okay. One more quick thing, though, on that is also I would say, you know, at the Stuff takes time. So just like, like how The Daily Wire is coming out with their own movies now, um, the author of Woke Inc., I can't remember, Vivek, I can't remember. Well, his last, yeah. So he actually now has an investment firm Vanguard. that is countering the yeah. BlackRock, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it's man. taking time, but we do see also solutions arising. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Stephen, you mentioned the poll that Echo and Insights uh, did about ESG and those things. And while 
obviously it shows that people do invest to try to maximize their profits, at least according to polling. I think it's an even higher percent that, than what people reveal. It also says that a majority of people actually do support the goals of like, you know, I want investment firms to pressure companies to protect worker pay or to protect the environment. Mm -hmm. And so don't you think that even if these people say they support these things politically and they want firms to do these things, even though they don't invest that way, isn't that um, basically a way for the government to just intervene and then they are gonna set the ESG standards? Do you think that that's a, a concern in the future? Yeah, it's absolutely a concern. I am always concerned with giving the government, which you know, power is changing hands every couple of years in Washington. As soon as you sign off on the government being able to intervene on your values this year, in four years it's going to be in the hands of the enemy. Uh, and you need to make sure that you are crafting legislation and changes of the rules that are not going to age badly uh, when you're no longer in power. So I, I absolutely worry about that. Um, I think it is absolutely the case that people want to support companies, and this is shown in every poll that we've ever commissioned, um, that share their values. They, they are generally inclined to want to buy things from companies that are not enslaving children or producing things at gunpoint in another country. Um, that's what people generally say, but then their wallet usually says differently. iPhones are a great example. Don't, uh, don't try to find out where your batteries are coming from. Um, you know, these are, these are real questions that we have to ask, uh, and over time they're going to get a lot more complicated. Thank you. It, it, you guys have hit on several subjects that are just really irritating to me. Uh, one, <laughs> Good. One is the ESG thing. Uh, which a lot of people are not even aware of and have no idea what's going on and don't realize that it's not just in the United States, it's global. Um, and they are coming up with some really, really very bad things that are going to restrict our own freedoms down the road. Yep. Um, the other thing is that as a, as a teacher, okay, when you teach business classes and you have something like okay, they put up a statue, right? And we all go, well, that's stupid. But kids in school nowadays go, oh, isn't that so nice? Because mm -hmm. everything to them is feely touchy instead of logical, right. seems like, right. okay? So I understand the things you're saying, and I get really, really mad when a, somebody goes woke, a company goes woke. I stop using their products, okay? I mean, as soon as you know they, Bed Bath & Beyond didn't like my pillow anymore, <laughs> I stopped going there uh, because I like my pillow. Um, so the thing that gets me is the other side is so organized and so loud. How do we now become organized and loud ourselves to start counteracting this? That's my biggest thing is how do we counteract it as a group? Because right. it's not going to happen individually. I write letters to everybody. How do we organize and get it done so we start counteracting this? Well, I think what's really important is consumer education because, once again, we have to take some accountability. So even, even when you have the boycotts, um, I, I even tell my students, be very careful about that. So I remember when everyone was boycotting BP because of the oil spill, and then you had boycotts of Chick-fil-A and all that sort of stuff. Those are franchises. Um, so really, you're, you're really hurting the small business owner, right? So if you want to boycott, you know, Starbucks, that's all wholly owned. But, you know, if it's a franchise, you're actually, you know, if the person who said, well, you know what, there's a Sunoco down the street, I'd like to open up a BP, I want a gas station, I can get the contract for this relationship, for 
the franchise, I'm going to do it, and you boycott them, right? So just be, be careful when you automatically boycott a business of who is it really hurting and how does it trickle down. The big concern, too, is the ripple effects of business. So even though we're talking about big businesses and large corporations who are adopting these standards, it does spill out. So once again, if, if a company is going to focus on ESG standards or some sort of corporate social responsibility ratings, it might limit or inhibit their ability to use a certain distributor or supplier who can't adhere to those um, uh, requirements. So I mean, and once again, it sounds well-intentioned, just like how, you know, foreign aid sounds well-intentioned. But if you've ever read Dead Aid by Dambisa Moyo, mm -hmm. right, we know that. Um, there are studies on sweatshops, on how, you know, as controversial as it sounds, you know, some sweat sweatshops are better than no sweatshops. Um, there's a great book called Travels of a T-Shirt that talks about the grueling, uh, work done in factories and in the apparel industry, but also how it raised millions in, and created a burgeoning mi middle class in Asia, right? Um, but if you are abiding by these certain standards, you can't be interacting with those companies. And so it's actually going to, so how you said it has a ripple effect across the globe, right? This yeah. is going to trickle down to small businesses who also take their, their cues from big business. So if this is what they are doing, they are going to feel pressure to follow. I just want to encourage you to be wary of opting into a collective uh, of people who you haven't vetted what their motivations are and what drives other people to be skeptical or encouraging of a brand. Um, collectivist thinking is, is supposed to be what they do. And I think the best thing for us to do, and this is really hard for me some days, is to act in the marketplace in an individualistic manner that is good for you. Uh, because only you know what is good for you economically this week. I might have to go to a company and, and you know, get a thing that's cheap for them you know, that week, even if I don't like them, because it's literally what I need to do so that I have enough money in my budget so that I can feed my family. Like We have to make decisions like that. Um, so I, just, I don't want people to get into this group mindset where we're all going to like boycott Disney. When one person's boycotting Disney because they have young children and they really, really resent uh, the trans ideology that they're slipping into the newest um, uh, Baymax movie um, that they're going to be putting out on Disney Plus versus like older consumers who like, what are you watching on Disney Plus? Like some of these old classic movies that are really like offending your sensibilities. I, I think it's really important for us to remember that we're individuals in the market. And when we do things that are good for us, we will largely then uh, have a better marketplace at at large. So. We, uh, we only have about a minute left, um, so I want to uh, go around and see if you have any final words, any final thoughts, and then we will end it there. Sure. Uh, I will include my answer to her with my final thoughts. Um, I, I, I personally believe that uh, I'm going to come off as the doomer of the table, that ultimately this is the eternal battle between collectivism and individualism. And collectivism is kicking the crap out of individualism right now. Mm -hmm. um, the good news, and also the bad news, is that collectivism fails on its own, because that's what it does. Um, so I think, I think that's what we're going to see, is that we're going to see a terrible recession, if not a depression, because of these policies. You, you have already seen revolutions that are happening all over the globe because of this Sri Lanka being the most dramatic and most recent. Uh, I think that if if we can get political will here to not take the same catastrophic missteps when it comes to messing with our food supply, then we might not end up in, you know, Mad Max. Uh, this is why I take such urgency to this matter, because I understand it is critical 
to sustain life on earth. And the vast majority of the politicians that, that espouse all of these beautiful sayings that mean nothing, they, they genuinely believe, and I, I believe this, they genuinely believe that eliminating carbon is paramount over sustaining the existing life on this planet. That is a very dangerous mindset to have, and it will create genocide. Um, so my focus is just to travel the globe, trying to wake up as many people as possible about this, this topic, and I pray that we can um, at least give ourselves some shelter here. I just want to piggyback on what was said, uh, really focusing on what's best for you and your family. Uh, I think we do need to focus on education and transparency and best practices. Um, but just a, a quick example is just, uh, you know, my daughters were born two years apart, right? And when, as a new mom, I wanted to know everything about what's the best thing to do, right? And I wanted the doctors to tell me what's the best thing to do, right? But even within those two years, what they advised me to do with my firstborn was dramatically different than the secondborn. So the firstborn should be sleeping alone in its room. You should lay it on a certain side and all that sort of stuff, right? My secondborn was supposed to be they're supposed to sleep in the room. We did what was best for, for us. We actually did something taboo, and we did the bed-sharing thing, right? We had to focus on what was best for us, but I still wanted to know that. And I think that's what businesses, they need to know best practices, what are others doing, what's good, give us advice. But they shouldn't be fenced in, and they shouldn't also be demonized for not partaking in these ratings or these frameworks. This one kind of uh, ends abruptly. I apologize for that. That's the audio file that I had. Uh, but that was basically the conclusion anyways. Hope you guys really enjoyed that one. If you want to support the show, another good way to do it, become a walking billboard by going to toplobster.com. The link to pick up Liberty Lockdown shirts is in the description for this episode. Coming up next is my panel uh, that I actually moderated, so I, I don't get to shine very much, but good Lord, do the rest of the panelists do it for me. You're going to love this one. This is Maj Ture, Gabriella Hoffman, and Spike Cohen. Gun rights and human rights. Why the Second Amendment is liberty's linchpin. With our moderator, Clint Russell. I can't compete with such a professional announcing voice, my goodness. Uh, I am Clint Russell. I'm the host of Liberty Lockdown and a uh, big fan of the Second Amendment. I don't know if we're going to have any disagreements on this panel, but I'm interested to see where it goes. Gabriella Hoffman is a freelance media strategist, award-winning writer, and townhall.com political columnist. She hosts the District of Conservation podcast. Welcome her in. Good to be here. Spike Cohen is one of the most based human beings alive. He's also <laughs> co-owner of Muddy Waters Media, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom, and the host of My Fellow Americans, and also a 2020 vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And in a razor-thin margin, my favorite human being on the planet, <laughs> Mr. Maj Ture, the founder of Black Guns Matter and the Solutionary Center in Philadelphia. So I thought we should start off by going around and basically just discussing why gun rights matter to each of these three individuals. Because we all, I think, based off our background, have differences of opinion as to why it matters to us. So let's start with the, uh, the, the personal answer. So if we go, Gabrielle, and just jump sure. down the line. Hmm. 
Hmm. My foray into the Second Amendment is largely through my family history. I don't know if you guys are familiar with my work, but my family fled the Soviet Union, Lithuania, which was one of the first countries, actually the first country to break away and topple that wretched system. And I always heard stories growing up about my grandfather and other relatives of mine being subjected to all these different horrors. They were also sent to gulags. And one of the first steps that they did, like with any gun, gun confiscatory policy or regime, they take away the guns. And so I heard that often growing up. I've seen it anecdotally in evidence. I've, you know, it's obvious throughout history. So my family history kind of guides my view on the Second Amendment. And I've largely grown in my journey with personally shooting firearms and using them also for hunting and, and target shootings so all across the board. I'm really embedded into the industry. I'm one of the few journalists out there who actually knows nomenclature and what the different gun parts are. A lot of my colleagues do not, and they are doing it on purpose. So I have a vested interest. I actually partake in shooting sports and the related industry, and that's kind of how I fell into it. But personal family history, and then also my vested interest in wanting to see these activities continue to flourish and more people having access to guns legally. Yeah, um, I don't really believe in gun rights. Um, I believe kind of like in human rights. And just guns is like the way that we protect it or protect them like the guns and inanimate object. So I'm not saying I don't, like, I'm clearly not anti-gun. I'm just saying that, you know, if I want to cut down my grass, if I, you know, you get a mower, you use the tool to do it. I could pretty, I could probably drive a nail with my hand, but it's stupid. Like, just get a hammer, you know? And so for me, it's just about respecting the human's right to defend self with whatever tool that is. So like later, like arms are arms, firearms just being the most proficient, you know, the most potential, you know, uh, powerful one. Um, in 10 years, if it's like, y'all remember G.I. Joe when they had like the laser guns? And it was pew, 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 pew. If in 10 years it's that, I want that. And it, it just won't be like a firearm, it'll be a laser gun. So just for me, it's more so about humans having the ability um, from all walks of life to have the ability to defend their life, whichever, or their value systems, whichever way that tool happens to be. You know, in the zombie apocalypse, if we run out of all of the ammo and guns, and everybody that knows how to make ammo is somehow gone, maybe chainsaws or bow and arrows will be the thing. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's just about the human right to defend self, and I think that's something that we have to make sure that we're consistently being on top of, because, you know, to Gabriella's point, governmental agencies and bodies that um, don't really want you to have that and would prefer for them to have that, you know, they got a secret stash, so we should too. So because we have such incredible advocates for gun rights, I almost reflexively feel like I need to play the, the devil's advocate, anti-gun rights person. So bear with me. I'm going to try. I may not be able to do this, so let me try. Um, how does that work? Okay, so when the, you know, when the, the founders, who, by the way, were all white men. I don't know. <laughs> don't know if you knew that. When the founders um, wrote the Second Amendment, uh, they did, couldn't have possibly realized that the technology would continue to advance as it always had through, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I tried. That was the best I could do. 
I gave you the call. They're white men, and uh, that was really it. All I had, uh, they were white men. Um, so, no, I, I will say my background personally on what first made me realize very early on uh, about gun rights was my father talking to me uh, about the history of our people, the Jewish people. Yes. And um, uh, my father is, uh, I'm from a second marriage, so he's very old. He was alive in America when, when the Holocaust was happening and grew up with people who came to the States after the Holocaust and heard firsthand from them the nightmares they experienced. And so my, my, my father is explaining these things and saying the first thing they did was make sure that they couldn't defend themselves, going to, to both Gabriella and Maj's point. And then he talked to me, he said, and we don't have to look at other countries to see what happens when they take away your guns. We've seen that with the natives. We've seen that with freed slaves. We've seen that with immigrants uh, that were coming from uh, Europe uh, in the uh, 1800s. We've seen every time that they took guns from people, the very next thing they did was victimize them. Sometimes it was just mass incarceration. Sometimes it was just straight up genocide and killing as many of them as they could and taking everything they had. Whatever it was, it was always first take away their ability to fight back and then do whatever the hell we want to them. And so if for no other reason, I don't care if you don't like guns, I don't care, you know, I think we all do actually like guns. We like, like I do machine gun shooting events and stuff. By the way, if I'm in your town and we do a machine gun shooting event, you're gonna wanna come out. But even if you don't like guns, even if you hate guns, even if you're scared of guns, understand that we cannot protect ourselves from people who have total control and total power if they also have a monopoly on the ability to project violence. And that's what gun rights are about, the Second Amendment, all of that is based on that concept. So the premise of this talk today was that gun rights are basically the linchpin of free people. And a lot of people, so I'll, I'll be the devil's advocate since Spike could. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people would argue that Democracy is how we should best defend our rights because that's the peaceful avenue to do so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing devil's advocate. Uh, so if you guys could, I, I'm giving you an, an open, this is a, a free lane to the basket on dunking on democracy. Go ahead. I don't think I'll dunk on democracy, but I'll say that it's enhanced when you are able to carry and you are able to own guns. I think citizens are better equipped and better educated when they have that ability. My father always tells me the refrain that what separates us from anywhere else in the, the globe is having that crucial right to keep and bear arms. That's what keeps the freedoms, what we're seeing unfold in Washington, D.C., where I live, close by, the continued assault after assault by policy. What is going to be kind of that buffer, having your Second Amendment, essentially, if they're not respecting free speech and other issues? And so I think... A citizenry that is armed, that is well-trained, that is educated about the guns that they're using and educating people in the process, we're much better off, we're safer, and I think we keep bad actors at bay, uh, whether they're in government or elsewhere when we have that. So I think it is really critical to a constitutional republic that we have more astutely to have a citizenry that is armed, happy, fulfilled, and being able to do that without any restrictions. And I think... We saw some remedies recently with the Supreme Court. It could go a lot further, but it was a good, crucial first step, and now states are starting to have to, thankfully, comply with the ruling that they can't restrict uh, shall issue. And then we can talk about, obviously, constitutional carry. So 
certain checks and balances are being put into effect, thankfully, but we are at a stalemate. So it is really important that you do look for people who do support the Second Amendment all across the board from local to federal. So that's how we create, I think, a better constitutional republic when you have people who are representing our interests in these different bodies. So um, more gun ownership does not, I mean, if you look at democracy as mob rule, which that's kind of what it is, um, more firearms owners, safe and responsible firearms owners, is not good for democratic rule. It's not good for mob rule. It's good for the democratic process, the system of checks and balances, the, the process of going, hey, we all want this and you guys want that. But the people, if both of us are armed, then nobody tries to violate the other group that wants less or the less people that want the thing. So if you're looking at democracy as a mob rule, firearms absolutely destroys democracy as a mob rule. It protects the democratic process that goes in alignment with securing the individual rights and liberties to secure the constitutional republic that we have. That's the balance. I'm good with democracy or the pitchfork people being like, oh, Frankenstein got to go. Frankenstein was over there chilling, bro. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Let him be in his castle, like, with Dr. Frankenstein and the guy and the dude. So if, if they want to make Mrs. Frankenstein, then so be it. My point, though, is that's the part of why it's important. And I think to, to add on to that, that's the reason why so many of the democratic socialists um, want the firearm to be removed so they can get their mob rule popping. It makes sense. Like, if I was an evil genius, I, it, it's, it's what I would do. You know what I'm saying? If I can convince people that somehow this is going to be in opposition to their own interest and I can get my democratic play off, it makes sense. So more firearms owners actually is more in alignment with the individual liberty. And then everyone else collectively can benefit from their individual liberties because, you know, like, you're not going to fuck with my shit because I'm, I'm right here with my gun. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's a very critical distinction when we're explaining, um, you know, leftists are great at hijacking terms and words. And I think a lot of people don't know the core meanings of words or what these words actually mean. And as a, a libertarian room, we kind of are charged with the responsibility of like retranslating it. You know what I'm saying? I keep saying liberal, and I'm like, bro, I got to stop calling them liberals. Yep. They're not liberals. Like, they are not cut from the Thomas Paine cloth. You know what I'm saying? I got to stop calling them progressive. There's nothing progressive about what they're doing. It's regressive. You know what I'm saying? So we actually got to play a little bit of um, magic. Um, and, and spelling, casting spells, the spells and the words and the incantations that we use because etymology is a real thing. You know what I'm saying? So saying that all to say, um, long story short, which I've failed to do, <laughs> firearms protects the democratic process that secures the individual right that can sustain the constitutional republic. Firearms ownership destroys mob rule because most people in mobs are cowards and it's very difficult for the mob to find someone if you know they got a gun. Yeah. The moral of the story there is if only Frankenstein had had a gun. <laughs> That's it. Now it's a happy ending. Turned out fire wasn't bad. No, so... Uh, 
going off of what of, of what they've both said, this is the beauty of being the third person to talk is that they make all your points even better than you could have. Um, We're flipping it next. Yes. Time. Okay. Oh, even better. Awesome. Then I can really riff. Um, but going off of of all of that, um, let's just talk about what democracy is, and we can use a much smaller analogy, um, distilling it down. Um, actually, I do want to. I do. Ha- I want to argue with one point. I'm okay with calling them progressives, uh, in the same way that my multiple sclerosis is a progressive disorder. Uh, so yes, they are trying to make things slowly worse, whether they realize it or not. In the same way, my immune system is trying to make things worse, and, and really thinks it's doing the right thing. That's actually really. That's the exact same thing. So anyway, so I'm good with calling them progressives, but they're definitely not liberals. They are very illiberal. Um, here is democracy. So imagine you're in this room, but there's only like five people in it with you. And they decide, uh, you have a vote on what kind of food you want to get, and it's a 3-2 split, and uh, you know uh, Chinese won out over pizza. So I'm happy if I'm one of them. Um, but then they have the vote on who pays for it. And you don't have as much lobbying ability as the other five, pe- other five people do in that group. And so they all vote that you pay for it. Now, that's democracy, and yeah, it is mob rule, and to both Gabrielle and, and Maj's point, if you said, well, I'm happy to pay as much as I owe in this, uh, in this transaction, but I'm not paying for all of it, and uh, they or one of them or all of them are the only ones that uh, have any ability to be able to fight anyone or stop anyone, like for example, a gun, you're probably paying for that mm-hmm. with your money or your life maybe even both. If you have a gun, you at least have a shot. You at least have a fighting chance of being able to stop it. More importantly, there's a deterrence factor there. There is a deterrence to them even threatening that in the first place. Democracy might be a good way of deciding different things that have to be done in the political process, but if they know that everyone has the ability to stop those who would force them to do something, they have to be a lot more humble. And I, I want to be clear about the Second Amendment, gun rights, and everything else, because we often talk vaguely about it. You know, we're doing this to fight against tyranny. But what does that mean? What does fight against tyranny means? Here's what it means. The politicians and bureaucrats and law enforcers who would be the ones to apply that tyranny to you in their respective jobs are being reminded that they, too, occupy soft mortal bodies that respond very poorly to fast-moving lead. And when that happens, suddenly they're at least a little more humble. And that is how gun rights factor into democracy or anything else. It is about protecting your individual rights and being able to protect those of others. Along the lines of what Maj said, the democratic socialists tend to want to disarm and leave us incapable of defending ourselves and uh, kind of a topical item, even though it's not a gun, but it's still the right to defend your life, is Jose Alba, the yes. bodega operator in New yes. York, yes. being charged with murder. So I would, I would like to go around the panel and discuss, I guess, you could take it wherever you want, but why are they, especially since he's like, he's a protected class, he's, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's just, it's wild, and even in New York. Um, but he was assaulted and he defended himself with a knife and he killed the assailant. What is, where does this lead? What are they attempting to accomplish? Because obviously they, they allege that this is about reducing violence, but if you can't defend yourself and you just become a victim of violence, where do we end up? 
Are you starting with me? Okay. Yeah. So the ultimate protected class in New York City is the violent criminal. Okay? Uh, with or without a badge. That, that's, they're not worried about whether you have a badge or not. If you're a violent criminal, then you are the ultimate protected class. And we're seeing that with the Jose Alba case. For those who don't know what the Jose Alba case is, I can, I can fill that in a little bit. Basically, Jose Alba uh, worked at a bodega, a shop in New York City. And uh, some, a lady came in and uh, purchased some chips or something like that. And when she went to use her card, um, it was declined. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't give this to you. And she started yelling and said, I'm going to go get my boyfriend and he's going to F you up. And so her, her boyfriend came in to do that. He walked around and uh, uh, attacked uh, Jose Alba, pushed him into a corner, uh, started yelling and threatening a bunch of stuff at him. Jose tried to get away from him. Uh, the man grabbed him. I think his name was uh, Austin Simon or something was. like that. Was. Was. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one of the last things Austin Simon tried to do was stop a peaceful person from getting away from him. And that was the last mistake he made. Uh, because Jose Alba grabbed a knife and stabbed him and was able to successfully protect himself. Now, I have yet to meet a single person who isn't District Attorney Alvin Bragg who thinks that that isn't okay and that that wasn't acceptable and that, that he wasn't well within his rights. The reason they're prosecuting him for that is in the same line of why they're trying to ban body armor. It's not, and it's also about gun control. They say that gun control is for your safety. Well, that makes no sense at all. If they were about your safety, then they clearly would be okay with you wearing body armor, right? Because then that's just, all that does is keep you from getting shot or at least keep you from being killed or, or reduce the chances of you being killed. And they'd certainly be okay with you protecting yourself against someone who's trying to beat you up and keep you in a corner. It's obviously not about your protection. It's about taking away your ability to defend yourself against anyone. Not only are you now you know, completely subservient to them and whatever they want, but you're reliant on them for your protection. And all we need to do is look at the Uvalde police to see what that protection looks like. Yeah. Um, so he also was stabbed too, the bodega yeah. owner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he gets stabbed, tried to de-escalate the, the situation, tried to avoid the conflict, gets stabbed, defends himself, and then he gets charged. With, this, with the state or the district attorney uh, attempted to try to play there was he didn't anticipate, like I didn't even know this, there's like bodega unions. I didn't, I didn't even know that was like a thing. I just know they pop up everywhere. Um, that's why. And that's why. <laughs> um, and the bodega union got involved and made a lot of noise about, yo, because he would have still been in Rikers right now. But what happened was they were like, nah, this is crazy. Even Eric Adams, the mayor, was like, nah, bro, like kind of this isn't cool. So they reduced his uh, bail, his ransom. Um, they reduced it a whole lot, and he's out. But that, that, that shouldn't even be a charge. Now, um, I do think that he should sue civilly. He's just been ran through the ringer. I, I mean, like, that's, like that should be like a, a, a layup at this point. Um, but on top of that, it it creates it tells you very clearly this not only was it like hey we're gonna this is about safety and the only reason why they folded to the pressure is because there was pressure from a bunch of people the people but the other thing was it was also like a like a that district attorney was trying to you know throw his line in the sand in regards to we don't care what the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association uh, Supreme Court case that just overturned this. 
we want to show that we as the city of New York are going to say no to those conservative Supreme Court justices. So it's the, the political play. Now, if he wasn't a member of the Bodega Association and people didn't make noise, he would probably still be in Rikers right now. This is a political play to show that. Um, and this is where I always gamble between, are you guys down with like the globalist thing or are you just guys just mad at conservatives or so-called right-leaning like leftist politicians? I always struggle with that. And in this case, it looked to me, because it's New York, sidebar, we had a brief in that case at the Supreme Court level. That's just a humble brag. But <laughs> my point in saying that is I don't sometimes know if they are just thumbing their nose at the opposing team or if they are just in, a, in alignment with a bigger agenda. And I struggle sometimes in that space. But here it just looks like you, this particular district attorney was just trying to make it look like, nah, forget those guys. Because there's no way you can argue the point, even if Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, who is notoriously anti-gun, if he's, if he's even going like, nah, we got to kind of like side with the people on this one. And so um, this, to me, it seemed like it was that. And the overall agenda to your question, Clint, is whether it's thumbing it at the so-called right or in alignment with a bigger agenda, it's still the same outcome over time, which is we want you incapable of... I guess, do you guys as gun owners understand that you are potentially... At, I mean, I'm good with being like... Uh, outlaw. That's how I've lived most of my life. Do you guys understand that we are going in a direction that fighting for your freedom will make you an outlaw? So I think that's the overall agenda, whether they get there by like hook or crook, ignorance and or, or intention. I think that's the overall agenda and outcome yep. in that space. I think this incident gives light to the reason why the Supreme Court ruled yes. to invalidate May issue yeah. for this very reason. And they're putting out different carve-outs to make it impossible for New York petitioners to be able to say, I don't need a good cause, I just want to have a permit. Mm. So had he had, let's say, a concealed weapon, he may have been able to stop him before he was stabbed. Yeah. And so this can be used. It's a horrible case study. The fact that this guy lost his rights was in Rikers, uh, still has to deal with outgoing issues. This can be used as a case study to say, this is what happens when you continue to create restrictions and obstacles to people getting their permit. And that's what New York City is doing. The state of New York, they're still trying to contest this ruling. And it, it's really sad that it took a man almost losing his life for people to recognize, okay, maybe this is why concealed carry is important in an urban setting. This is why the Second Amendment matters, because the guy had to, he will find a way to defend himself. If he had a gun, it's probably a lot more effective than a knife. You know, we'll have that debate over. Uh, we always have that debate about like what tools to use, but a gun is a better deterrent in many cases than a knife would be. And so, I think people, and hopefully people who don't agree with us on on the gun rights issue, they will see from this lens that a man was stripped of his rights, deprived of his humanity, because of the gun control policies in effect in New York City. So, yeah. I think I don't I don't think it's like a positive outcome from it, but I think um, insight into this is that good. Policy changes can come from unfortunate circumstances like this. And we are starting to see more people on the left, I think, start to come around and say, okay, this is an inalienable right. Concealed carry is great. And we can try to kind of peel back at more gun control through this. But it shouldn't take unfortunate incidences like this with people almost dying for the right to self-defense to come out and make sense to people.
<laughs> can, I, can I add something to that real quick? To Gabriella's point, that's why Nipsey Hussle's dead now. Yep. He convicted felon, changed his life. Yep. Hiring guys that were felons, getting their life together. He gets murdered in front of his place of business because no, none of his team could carry a firearm lawfully. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So that's one. Like, this does not work. And then clearly this person's now a productive member of society like the bodega owner, right? The other thing is, I, I wouldn't have been the guy arguing with somebody and all of that, but even if he would have had that lawful ability to have that firearm as the deterrent, to Gabriella's point again, if I know that you're armed, I might even not even come behind that counter, so even the bad guy in that scenario might even still be alive. So there's two different ways to skin that cat in that space. Firearms are deterrents to, you know, Spike's point. It's like, you know how many times I tweet, Yo, if you got problems with me, I'm, my exact location is right here. And nobody shows up. <laughs> you know, you know, I can't find him. <laughs> I don't know where he's at. I didn't see his Twitter that day. My, my point in saying that is it's the ultimate deterrent. That could have even, that guy, I believe in redemption. That guy could have had a bad moment, bad day. And unfortunately, it cost him his life. His lady put a battery in his back. And now he got wound up. And now he don't got no more juice. So, like... These are the things that can all be case studies or examples of why these things should be, these firearms or tools should be made available. They already are. Like, the debate's over. Like, carry a gun. So that's, that's all I want to add. I, I, and I'm sorry, because you brought up uh, violent felons not being allowed to, or previous felons not being allowed to own a, a weapon. Um, so I just, I want to get a poll um, of the audience here. Who here thinks that someone who has committed a violent, grievous felony should never be allowed to own a firearm again. And it's okay if you raise, a lot of people think this, okay? So if you raise your hands, I've seen a few people go like this, violent felon, they're out, they've done their time, but think that they should uh, not be able to ever own a firearm legally again, okay? Now keep your hand raised if you think that gun control works. <laughs> okay, thank you, okay. Um, so you know i grew up in the 90s and i i could understand the the gun grabber argument when it came to this is some alex jones nonsense we're not gonna have tyranny in america (laughs) and then 2020 rolls around and i'm like Mm. y'all need to shut up right Mm. Um, so how is it that there are still some people in this country that that tend to believe that we could never experience tyranny in sincere fashion that would require gun use. Well, they didn't have family members oppressed like Mm -hmm. my family was or Spike's family was in Nazi Germany. So it takes having some proximity to the horrors to kind of contextualize it. And there are lots of other people. I think even the, I guess a a recent crop of people, because I was born in the United States, my family, my parents are in their 60s and 70s. There are a newer crop of people from Latin America who are seeing their home countries descend into these socialist hellholes, if I may put it that way. They're confiscating guns. Yeah. So countries going in kind of this really regressive direction. And again, they're implying or they're in, in importing from the United States and other countries gun control policies and starting to strip their populace of having the ability to carry. And I think, you know, I could channel my dad. My dad looks like the original Dosa Keys guy and he can spout off on like why it sucks. And he's great and he's amiable. He's kind of off the cuff. He's a construction guy and very smart and articulate. So someone like my dad could help with contextualizing the history and he does uh, from the tyrannical standpoint. But I think people just, 
They're too insulated and comfortable in this country and they've never really had it hard. Uh, they're definitely, it's sometimes hard to make it up this way in this country. I know that's very true. People go from rags to riches, of course, but I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, a lot of people haven't had a loss of rights for the most part in this country. We are very privileged here. We get to enjoy luxuries. We have oil and gas. We have all these great comforts. We are still able to own guns in the majority of cases, even though we have the betters in government that don't want us to. But I think deploying people who lived through those experiences, who firsthand experienced gun control policies, whether they were the older generation seeing the Soviet Union or the CCP or this newer crop, including even the CCP now, uh, of Latin American refugees or uh, CCP escapees, anyone who has seen it even more directly more recently, um, leaning on them, hearing them and, and not treating them as these kind of outcast figures, but mm. listening to them, they have a lot of foresight. And sometimes it may sound unhinged, but they're largely right in the end, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's not my experience. My hood is like, like North Philly is completely militarized. Since, so I'll tell you my first interaction with law enforcement. I worked at McDonald's. I was in high school. I went to William Penn High School. The high school does not exist anymore. They tore it down. They made like, they gentrified. It's like a track, like Temple University. Um, I was leaving school to go to, I had a free period. You know how like when you go to school, you got a free period and you can leave and come back. And I went to the gallery. The gallery doesn't exist anymore. It's a mall. And I would go down there, and I was excited for my first check. And I went down there, and at the time, it was like Ralph Lauren shirts were the thing. I bought a Ralph Lauren shirt with my, like, I don't know, like $400 for like two weeks at McDonald's, right? So I get the shirt. I wear the shirt. I'm going back to class. Cop car pulls up in front of me, put me on the hood of the car. Engine's hot. Right? You're there. They go through my pockets because I have on the polo shirt that the hustlers wear. Oh, you out here hustling. It used to be called hustling. It's called trapping now. You out here hustling. No, I'm not hustling. I got a work-study joint. I just went down to the gallery to get a sweatsuit and some clothes. Da, 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 da. They took the money out of my pocket. Lied to you not, right? They took my bread and was like, all right, you could go to class. And they said, I was like, damn, you're not going to even leave me money for a Trizzy? A Trizzy is a transpass where you spend a certain amount of money. You can swipe unlimited on public transportation. And the cop threw $10 at me and said, you could get some fucking tokens. That's my first interaction with law enforcement in Philadelphia, the birthplace of America. Yeah. So I say that to say, you guys... Our community absolutely understands the militarization and oppression, not to the extent of we're coming to murder you. Well, well. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> right. that too, yeah. No. But there's a constant control and patrol situation. That's why the law enforcement citizen interactions are horrible there. Yeah. It's, not, it's not people making songs called like, fuck the firemen. <laughs> it's because you guys are here fucking with people. Yeah. And so... Um, our community, absolutely, we responded to it because we were scared by media to say, you got to like wear this mask and this, that, and the third. But my community never was like, that can't happen here. Like, that shit never. It, it, black people in the room. How many black people in this room? One, two, rookie fucking numbers. <laughs> right? Did you feel like this can't happen here? Look, see their face, they're like, fuck no. Like, <laughs> my point in saying that is there was already a different feeling in that, in that space. 
Like, if I smoke weed and I'm just chilling after a long day and I'm smoking on my steps, I run the risk of somebody riding down my strip, the police, and telling me put my hands up against the wall. So it was never a, this can't happen here for my community. It was a, it's like when people was like, when like it came on television, like the Rodney King beating, and everybody was like, oh my God, I can't believe. The hood was like, yeah, like what, what are you... Now yeah. we have video cameras. Now. We, right. Yeah, it's just getting, you know, so it's different in that space. I just think that they did a double down on our community with better PR to scare the community a different way yeah. into compliance. Like, you better wear this mask. Your granny's going to die. But they couldn't use the same fear factor of us. Like, if we used to eating oodles and noodles and peanut butter and jelly, what the fuck are you scaring us with? You know what I'm saying? And as a side note there, um, so for those who were shocked to hear what Maj was talking about, where they stole his money for no reason, didn't even bother charging him with a crime, and treated him like a criminal even though he did not, that's called civil asset forfeiture. Okay? That's, not only is that legal, if you were wondering, it's one of the main ways that police departments across the country get money. If that surprises you, you need to Google civil asset forfeiture after this. You also need to clue, uh, uh, Google police domestic abuse 40%, but that's another thing you can look into. But if you Google police uh, civil asset forfeiture, you will discover uh, that police steal more money like that, and it's usually, I think the average amount that they take that they record is around 900 to $1,200. So it's that. It's not drug kingpins. It's everyday people who are going to the store using their legally earned money and, you know, purchasing something or just going about their business and they just didn't look like someone that should have a shirt like that. Who here thinks I would have gotten bothered by the cops for wearing that same shirt there? <laughs> no, well, wait, maybe. Just for being in that no, neighborhood? That it would have been for a different reason. They wouldn't have said you were selling drugs. They said I was buying drugs. Yeah, you buying drugs. And they would have been right, <laughs> incidentally. So, so <laughs> completely on brand, that does... That does track. But um, during that time, yes. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so, so civil asset forfeiture, uh, billions of dollars. The police steal more money from innocent civilians than private sector criminals do. Look it up. It's, it's billions more. And you're going to be shocked to discover that the man who made that a federal money laundering policy called civil asset forfeiture and weaponized it was a young senator trying to get his chops in named Joe Biden. Anyway, so uh, the <laughs> shocking, I know. Uh, I forgot the question. 81 million, 81 million votes any, spike. Any, what, was the, what was the question? 81 million votes spike, I'm just saying. 81 million votes. He's that's very popular. That's a, that's a vote for every, what, $10,000 the police steal every year. So uh, the, uh, and so what was the original question? Oh, it never could happen here. Yeah. Privilege. Uh, people that have absolutely no concept of the fact that, yeah, it's going to happen here. It's called normalcy bias. But if your normalcy is what Maj and Gabriella and my father were talking about, then the normalcy bias is, yeah, they'll do that here. If your normalcy bias is the police are here to protect us, and the government is here to protect us, and they just, you know, sometimes they screw it up when the politicians we don't like are in charge. But when the politicians we do like are in charge, well, we still complain about it, but it really they're just here to protect us. Even when, I remember the first anti-lockdown video I made was in March of 2020, before there were any lockdowns here. I was letting people know that there were lockdowns in China and there were lockdowns 
in uh, Spain and Italy at that point, and that it was coming here. Here was how they were going to do it. Uh, I think I even mentioned the fact that they were going to use the 2005 bird flu lockdown plan. That may, that may have come later when I talked about that. And I said, and here's why we should be opposing it. Here's why it's going to do nothing to stop this virus. And I remember those first couple videos I made, all the comments were people going, you idiot. They'll never do that here. It's an election year. What, are you kidding me? They're not going to tell people to stay inside. And within a matter of days, when they started implementing them rapidly, I was making those same videos and those, many of those same people were saying, you idiot, if you go outside, you're going to kill everyone's grandmother. It happened so quickly because the, and this, by the way, is the source of almost every problem we are facing, if not every problem we're facing in this country. The vast majority of people in this country are so disconnected from the pattern that is happening in front of them. All it takes is 3%. Yeah, we can get into that. But the vast majority of people are so programmed that they are content with being led by their noses from bad crisis to crisis and from bad government idea to bad government idea that causes those crises. All along going, they'd never do that, you better comply. They'd never do that, you better comply. And they'll do it with gun control. The people who are right now saying, oh, you know, you can't stop a tyrannical government with the AR-15, so why should you even have it, are the first ones who will say, yeah, round them up and kill all of them. And you don't believe me? Red flag laws. Red flag laws are swatting as policy. All you have to do is call the police and say, someone did something that bothered me. And the criminal justice system that has been set up to incentivize warrants being approved, arrests being made, things being seized, and people being convicted above any actual justice will now be used against innocent people who aren't even accused of committing a crime, but just worrying someone and getting no knocks swatted sometimes at three in the morning to take firearms that they may or may not own. And if you don't think that won't end in massive, as the progressives put it, gun violence, then you're fooling yourself. And of course, we know that but they know that too. If you tell them that'll lead to gun violence, they'll say, one less of those gun nuts. Mm -hmm. Unironically, they don't care about gun violence. They care about their hatred of you because they've been conditioned to hate you because you're protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, that was good. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, all right, so. Uh, Joe Biden famously said that you would need an F-15 to fend off the American government. Mm. <laughs> Eric Swalwell said, what's your AR-15 gonna do against the nuke? Mm -hmm. First off, that sounds like war talk to me and I yeah. don't take kindly to yeah, it, but threat. can we fend off the American government if push came to shove? Is this starting with me? Uh, let's start with Maj, because we okay. haven't given yeah. it a start yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. Too many cowards. And it's a challenge. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody that got a gun ain't a shooter. We were just having a conversation earlier about, like, the, you know, that whole 3% thing. Like, 3% of the people is really all you need to, to get busy. Um, this place was created with the contradictions. This place was created like, yo, they, they taxing us crazy. This 4% shit is insane. Or whatever percent it was. <laughs> And like <laughs> now it's like it's like forty percent of your check. So the lack of history, I'm I'm optimistic for my nest, my team that I'ma call if when it get when it's time. Oh, we gonna thrive. 
I'm, I'm, I already know which buildings we taking. <laughs> what I'm saying, though, is like overall, I don't, and this is a very pessimistic and maybe even nihilistic statement, I do not know if the general public is in the mental, physical, spiritual position to be righteous like those dudes at that time. You know what I'm saying? When I think about like the Mau Mau, when I think about like the, the, like the Jamaicans that went into the mountains and they hair locked and came back to kill, like when I think about dudes that are fighting or even if the people, people of like Afghanistan that rumbled for 20 some odd years for their way of life, like the level of comfort that the American people have at this point I can't in good faith say we could really rumble because like y'all like Dunkin Donuts and like <laughs> stuff that in a war is no longer an option and, I, and I'm basing that I used to be much more optimistic about this answer but I'm basing it off of like the last two years like I live in Philly I live in the birthplace of America and I looked at everybody, all of the businesses that told me, we went to a libertarian event where they was like, yeah, we're going to oppose the lockdowns when they come with the businesses that saying you're going to have to ask for the vaccine. There was a group of businesses that was like, no. And I was like, bet. We had one meeting before it officially happened. And we went there and it was a pub. And I thought the irony was amazing because pubs <laughs> is where like this revolution thing happened. Yeah. Like the Marines started in a pub in a tavern in Philly, Ton Tavern, right? So I'm just like, oh, bet. It's about to be, I got them ammo. I got guns. We could do this. And then I went back to that place after the actual you got to show vaccine thing. And that literally, that same pub asked me for my vaccination papers. So the realist in me is most people are pussy. And I'm afraid of that. I think not enough of us have watched the Rocky movies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the case study of like, you're not supposed to win, but you work hard and you win, even if you lose in the beginning. Also in Philadelphia. Also in Philadelphia. <laughs> get a statue. <laughs> it's so integrate to like the American dream, like there's an actual statue of a movie character in Philly. <laughs> so um, on the ground level, in certain states, Texas, South Dakota, North Dakota... New Mexico, Utah, they got the high ground. They're going to pick people off in Utah. You know what I'm saying? Florida. But like the, most of the eastern seaboard, even the places that are like Boston is gone. Fuck Boston. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's messed up because that's like, but so the, the, again, I, I'm kind of like, that's where the AR was made and like, it's there now. So like, I don't, I don't, I want to say no because I don't see enough heart and I'm afraid and I am very careful with my words. I'm a, I'm a wordsmith. I am afraid. And China um, doesn't seem to be suffering from this bitch assness that's happening. And we owe them a lot of bread. Geopolitics is the street. We are in debt to this country for a lot of bread. And so if I if somebody owed me a lot of bread and they were soft and getting softer, I'm gonna come collect. And I don't know, I don't know if we could withstand it. So <laughs> <laughs>
I'll keep this brief so Spike can also chime in on this. And I look to an, a more recent example, and I support Ukrainians having their ability to defend themselves from Russians. But it's interesting when you see people here, their love, yes, AR-15s for Ukrainians. No AR-15s for Americans. And I'm like, you're so inconsistent. What are you doing? Do you not understand like why they're yeah. AR-15s or why they're defending themselves? So much like Maj, I am very worried in that respect. I won't say anything because I'm very careful with my words as well. Uh, but because there's that lack of consistency applied with understanding the threat of tyranny, look at the Ukraine example or let's say other examples happening across the globe, is that going to inspire American scare? No, because some are saying, well, we don't need this because this will never happen here. And then we are seeing real-world examples that it can happen here, uh, to put it lightly. So if they're not looking at the Ukraine case study and saying, like, oh, okay, now this is why we have it, or this is the particular firearm that we use, because AR-15s are actually excellent, and they are the preferred firearm of choice of women. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, that was from 2013, but I think it still uh, is the is the norm. Yeah, well, yeah, no, those are those are an interesting different thing, but I'm actually in the process of soon going to be building my own Virginia compliant for hunting air 15 so I can also shoot and also hunt. And so it's a very fun gun. People just misunderstand what it is. So I want to be optimistic, but if they can't look at the Ukraine situation and conclude that, yeah, an air 15 would be good as a deterrent if you were ever personally attacked. I don't know what we could do there. So no. So no. So no. So <laughs> piggyback. Everyone's scared here. We're all scared. Thank you so much for coming. Um, the uh, <laughs> and you should be too. Thank you. Um, so with the weaponry, can you overthrow a tyrannical government? Ask the Taliban. Ask the uh, ask the Viet Cong. Ask uh, the last several groups of people who have stopped the largest best funded and most powerful, we're told, military on earth. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, asymmetric warfare. And we have the home ground and the people we'd be fighting against are our loved ones who would be, you'd be fighting to protect, they'd be fighting to fulfill orders. Yeah, no, we'd win that if, speaking to their point, we had the heart to. Now there's two parts of it. There's comfort, which is a big part of it here in the, in the US. Another part is conditioning. So like in China, they don't have the comfort aspect. The reason they were seemingly cool with just having their doors welded shut until they starved to death for the zero COVID policy was because they've been conditioned mm -hmm. mental slavery to be that way. I live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And uh, in Georgetown, South Carolina, really in all of South Carolina, we were one of the hubs for slavery back during the, the, the antebellum period. And in Georgetown, South Carolina, they didn't really, uh, rice was not the crop there. The crop there was lavender. And lavender was used to make uh, dye, uh, dye for uh, dyeing uh, uniforms and things like that. So it was a very, very expensive crop. It also, because of the toxicity of the lavender when it was being processed by the slaves, the average slave lived to be about 22. Yeah, so they were under brutal conditions they, oh, and it was not like you just died. It was like neurological symptoms. You lose feelings in your hands. So they, they suffered very short and very brutal lives. Now, I know what you're thinking. If only they had guns, right? They had guns. They outnumbered the white population something like 20 to 1, and many of them, most of them had guns. They were given guns 
to uh, fight off, to shoot away the, uh, the, the pest birds, the crows and so forth. And what they were told is if you shoot, uh, if you are successfully able to kill a crow, uh, you don't just have to eat the byproduct of the pigs and cows and chickens we give you, the bones and the snouts and the, the feet and so forth. You can actually get the whole crow. And so you had a population of people who were being brutalized in a way that I'm not sure an entire population was ever treated that poorly for that long in the United States anywhere else ever in our history. And they were outnumbering and outarming the people doing it to them. And all they could think is, man, I hope I get a crow today. If you are conditioned to believe that your, what you are subjected to is the norm and that it's for your own good, it is amazing what you can get people to believe. And many of you are probably thinking, wow, I would never believe that. How many of you have back the blue stickers? <laughs> How many of you have shirts or hats to celebrate politicians whose administrations implemented the lockdowns? Free yourself from mental slavery and the guns will be just the tool that you can use to actually fight against tyranny. This was the thrill of my week and I want to thank this panel. I, I had too many questions so we ran out of time for the Q&A but I really appreciate you guys coming out. Give it up for Gabrielle Hoffman, Spike Cohen, Maj Ture. Thank you for showing up. You. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, thank you to Freedom Fest for having me out, and thank you to all those panelists for joining me in that event. I, I think it was highly valuable and highly entertaining on top of that. As always, uh, I want to thank the people that leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and everywhere. I know you guys leave them elsewhere, too, but uh, I only get reports from Apple Podcasts. So the, these are the reviews I'm going to read. It's been a while since I've done it. If you can't afford to s support my work over at libertylockdown.locals.com, well, then an easy way to help me out with the algorithms is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. It really helps get me affiliated with, say, Ron Paul's Liberty Report or Tom Woods or Dave Smith with Part of the Problem so that when people are checking their shows out, it will recommend my show to them. I am already coming up in that search with those guys, and it's a, it's a huge help. So please continue to leave those five-star reviews. Here we go. We got... Uh, Sharkface Killer says, wake up, great information and very eye-opening. Five stars. Thank you very much, Sharkface Killer. Uh, we got Native Techaskin says, eye-opening. Thanks for explaining what's really going on in our financial markets in a manner that even a simpleton like me understands what is looming. I get it now. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Five stars. Uh, <laughs> we got a two-star review from a random guy on the internet that says, credibility. I question it solely because you thought it was a good idea to interview Jack Murphy of all people. He is not a good guy. Why would I listen to anything he has to say? Well, you didn't have to listen to what he had to say because you could have shut off the fucking episode, you doofus. Uh, and up for the record, I think Jack has some interesting ideas, and I don't care your beef with him otherwise. I don't give a shit. I'm going to interview fucking socialists and Marxists and all sorts of people. Uh, so if you just expect me to interview purely, purely li libertarian, principled, perfect human beings, uh, pretty sure they don't exist. So get used to it, weirdos. Uh, someone also leaves a four-star review. Even uh, Evan Stevoid says, Hector Roos. Hector Roos is a moron. Well, I'm sorry, Hector, my friend. He says, DeSantis is far from perfect, but Hector Roos is in dreamland. Life doesn't work in a dreamland. Well, okay, Hector, or Evan, uh, maybe leave me five stars anyways, because you shouldn't be punishing me just because you didn't like my guest. It's a very weird thing to do. Uh, moving on, five stars. Krushnamurti Enthropy says, Judge Knapp, if Judge Anupal... 
if Judge Andrew Napolitano is a regular, you're doing something right. Love your show and keep up the good work. I shall. Thank you to Judge Nat for joining me every Thursday. It's a blast. We got Midday Mike says five stars. Hells yeah. Mentioned by the SPLC. Looks like we made e- uh, made it easy like a Sunday morning. That's right, Midday Mike. We sure did. Thank you, SPLC, for the marketing help. Appreciate you guys. Uh, Kill8364 says great show. Five stars. We got... No Town Anarchy says, top-notch. Liberty Lockdown is, is my absolute favorite podcast. I'm a new fan, but now die hard. Clint is an absolute beast. Much love, bro. Much love to you. If I could be your favorite podcast, that means the world to me. So I hope you actually hear this. This will obviously be audio only. So if you watch on video, you have no idea how appreciative I am of such a kind review. RKPA410 says, five stars. Liberty, thanks for keeping us informed. As a working mom, it's hard to keep up with the madness. This is why I'm here, so that I can distill down the madness into something that's at least quasi-palatable. That's my goal, at least. And last but not least, we got ATL Born. It says, excellent podcast. Anyone who's tired of the left-right, same old talking points, this pod will give you a breath of fresh air. Extremely well done. Five stars. Boom. Thank you, guys. We are up to 409 reviews on Apple Podcasts with an average rating of 4.8 out of 5. means the world to me that you guys don't just listen, but you actually appreciate and enjoy my work enough to go and leave those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Anyways, I really, really appreciate the help. If you want to support the work, if you want to really get in there, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. I have exclusive content over there, including AMAs where you can come in on stream with me. And uh, if you can't do that, just leave a five-star review. You guys rock. I'll see you soon. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppening. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house The malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with a fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic and rip a 59 Miles to ratio that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe